On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about the election. No, 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 not the old election. We're talking about the next one. Yeah, we're already looking ahead. Should politicians simply say honestly what they think about certain issues or should they continue to be mushy and gray? Because it seems the politicians, at least the one in this past election who came out and said exactly what he thought he did very, very well. We'll talk about that one. Uh, We're going to be chatting about math. Is there such a thing as a math person? We've had lots of problems in this city with math marks. My guest, a person who is called the math guru, says there is no such thing as a math person. Everybody's a math person. If that's true, though, think about what that means. We'll explain. And we talk about the beloved, beloved Canadian tradition thing, the Zamboni. 70 years old this year, but we're going to break a little news to you. It's not Canadian. We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You know, yesterday I said we were done with the election. That had been the plan. Turns out I lied. (laughs) Because I want to look ahead for a few minutes to the next election, which could be coming sooner than any of us really want. Because I think you can probably look at every single leader in this election, Trudeau who won and the others who didn't win, and say there are certain areas within their campaigns where they pulled their punches, where they wanted to say something. You know they wanted to take a different or a harder stand, but they pulled back because they were afraid that if they took that strong stand, they may upset somebody and lose some votes. The one that comes to mind, the most obvious for me, uh, Jagmeet Singh. With Bill 21 in Quebec during the French language debate, uh, that's the secularism law where people in Quebec can't wear religious symbols, including his turban. Uh, You know he strongly opposed that. He talked about it after the debate in a press conference. Same with Justin Trudeau. He feels the same way, I believe. Uh, Andrew Scheer danced around several conservative issues to try to win votes in the 905 region. And yet you look at Quebec, Trudeau and Singh, Despite the fact that they were trying to be careful, they both lost ground in Quebec, despite not offending anybody with the uh, Bill 21. And Sheer got nowhere in the 905 region. Meanwhile, Yves-Francois Blanchet, the bloc leader, said exactly what he meant and got all kinds of momentum for saying what he meant. I wonder if there's a lesson and a moral here. Stephen Ledru is a commentator. He is the former president of the Liberal Party, someone we love having on the show. Stephen, how are you today? I'm in great shape, and thank you very much for inviting me on. I was just listening with great interest to what you said. And what I was thinking in response to your words was that maybe the time of leaders being politically correct, maybe the times of leaders, as you say, not saying what they mean because for fear of offending somebody, may be over because leaders are realizing if you don't take a stand, you're not going to get anywhere. Well, if you don't take a stand, to me, what came across in this election and what I, I wonder, again, if there's a lesson, is they all ended, ended up, a lot of them, sounding like the same mushy nothing, exactly. as opposed to being something unique and something strong. I think the Conservative Party is going to have to figure out whether it wants to be liberal light or whether it wants to be conservative, whether it wants to be ultra-conservative. They're going to have to figure out what they want to do and then follow that road. Um, I, th- I do not think, Scott, we're going to have an early election because everybody's tapped out. The NDP are in debt. None of the other parties are, um, are very rich. The Tories will come back quickly, I think, as far as uh, fundraising. 
But um, I think we're going to have to make this work, which is could be to the detriment of most Canadians because you know what the NDP want. They want free dental care. They want free pharma care. They want free loans to students. They want free this, free that. And Trudeau, if he can't make a deal with others, is going to have to give in to that. We're going to be held hostage, and the people who are going to suffer are the next generation because the money that's going to go spinning out of Ottawa will be unbelievable. It is, um, and I don't disagree with you. I, I mean, especially if he does have to make deals with the NDP, and I don't think he'll have to make too many with the Green, but nonetheless. But I want to go back to this other thing for just a minute here, Stephen. Sure. That is, to me, and let's go to Jagmeet Singh for just a moment, because I think right. that he's probably the easiest example to latch on to, because he's the clearest, he, he's the guy that when you look at Bill 21, for example, that it makes the most sense that he would have been against it, that he would have been right. vocally against it. And yet he was, it was clear he was not wanting to offend Quebec because, hey, they thought they could win seats there. That strategy failed absolutely and miserably. And I really believe that if he had come out guns blazing on that issue, that so many people outside Quebec agree, would agree with him, he may have lost some seats or some votes in Quebec, but he would have gained so much more around other places in the country. I, I, these strategies of just tiptoeing around issues to me are just a, a recipe for failure. I think you're absolutely right on that. He could have um, he could have picked up some of the seats in a 905, particularly in Brampton, um, if he had taken a strong stand. And um, I think this is, you know, people say it was a very dismal campaign and a dismal election. I think it was a mushy election. We got a mushy election. We have mushy positions, and we got a mushy result. And um, I think, but for finances of the parties. We would be having another one relatively soon, but I think they're going to make this work for two years or so, and I think Canada's going to suffer as a result of it, though. But um, as far as political commentary, as far as political positioning in this country, you are absolutely right. And, you know, the bloc were authentic. He was, you know, on the debates, I thought he was terrific, Blanchard. He said what he thought he said, what he wanted. And uh, Jugmeat did very well because he was authentic. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Out of the last election, heading into the next one, whenever that is, my guest Stephen Ledru says a couple of years from now, he may well be right. Uh, could be earlier than that, we don't know. But there, the, one of the morals to me, one of the lessons out of this past election is so many of the politicians, and we've seen this before, trying to dance around difficult topics rather than standing for something and it blowing up in their face and not get and because of that they don't get any kind of bump look Stephen I it seems to me that honesty is still okay in a politician but taking a socially unacceptable position scares them to death I think you're right but look at the prime example of that with our prime minister who was reelected and throughout the campaign and you saw this Scott someone would say well what's your position on um, SNC Lavalin you'd say I save jobs What's your position on aerospace? I save jobs. What's your position on, on um, the terrible loans that you're making to China? I save jobs. He would do this. Reporters would be laughing. And he put a smile on his face. He knew it was a non-answer. And yet he got elected. It drives people in the West crazy. Well, but it in does. Ontario, 
we settled for that. Well, we settled for it because, I, and here's the thing, one, I really believe that something that happened here is Andrew Scheer, and I think that it'll be the same for any conservative leader that comes along, right. is going to be painted as scary, as dangerous, as someone who wants to repeal women's rights and all these other things. And rather than just say what he truly believed, even Andrew Scheer, when he was asked about abortion in this, he later said, I'm not going to repeal the law. But the first time he couldn't really bring himself to answer the question properly. And it looks like he's hiding something. Say what you mean. I think you're absolutely right. And it's because he, in effect, was hiding something. He personally, if I understand it correctly, does not believe in abortion. But just like other prime ministers, witness, um, I think Harper and certainly Martin, who are not personally in favor of abortion, said, I have no intention of opening this issue up. It will not be on our government's agenda. And he didn't say that quickly enough. Of course, then the liberals got onto him and um, painted him, as you say, they painted him as someone who was uh, anti-abortion. And you lose a lot of votes on that. Well, and one of the ironies there, and just to you, uh, that's another example. We talked about Bill 21. Here's another one. Uh, the last poll that I've been able to find said 52% of Canadians actually support some sort of restrictions on abortions, or should they should only be allowed in certain circumstances, meaning we don't want late-term abortions. Now, Absolutely. I don't want to get into parsing this too much, but here's an opportunity where Sheer can stand on something that many people are going to agree with him on, and yet he's terrified to say something for fear that it's going to offend somebody. Which is why, Scott, when I was speaking to a re-elected conservative member of parliament today, I was trying to figure out what the party was like as far as Shear continuing. He said Shear is going to be continuing. He said he'll go through the review, that will be automatic, and he will be a far better candidate. And next time he takes on Trudeau, he will completely knock his lights out. And I guess I, I understand that because it is quite something to be up there in the public light day after day answering these questions. You need some experience. But if there's one thing I think we learned from looking at the electoral map at the end of the day the other night, right. uh, which, by the way, to Justin Trudeau's point, Canada did not vote against the politics of division. It voted for the politics of division. I think he misunderstood. But anyway, if you look at the map, you will see that we are not a monolithic country. And so if you try to appeal to everybody, you will appeal to nobody. Yes, but there are certain things, I think there are certain values that Canadians will stick with, whether you are in St. John's, Newfoundland, or Cranbrook, B.C., and all the places in between. There are certain values that we should highlight. What Trudeau, I was stunned two weeks ago when Trudeau said, the country is more polarized, more divided now than when I became prime minister. And he said, I've worked hard. At, uh, at not doing that. Well, it's your policies, buddy, that made the country polarized. And yet Canadians still re-elected him. When I think that, I've said this many times on National Post videos, he is not worthy of the job. Well, and your point that there are certain values, and I think what's, what's so ironic about this is that I think that Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May would all say there are certain Canadian values that we want to hold to. Right. Yet when Maxime Bernier says that, they go, racist! 
Yeah. And I, now I'm not defending Maxime Bernier. I'm simply saying I agree that there are certain values, but there's certainly room within those values for people to have different opinions. Absolutely, Scott, because we have cheap politics, and in many cases we have cheap media. Over the last two days, I've been hearing lots of people interviewed on other media, and they say, well, he's a progressive or she's an activist. Well, yeah, what about just normal people that believe in the normal things that we Canadians believe in? You know, decency, neighborliness, having a job, working hard, bringing up your family well. Instead of going for the progressives and activists, as the media who, who play up when politicians go after each other's throat, because they like to see that battle. And I don't think the media served Canadians well, by and large. Now, CMHL did, of course, <laughs> your show. And, and Stephen Ledrew did, of course. <laughs> but, but, you know, oh, I mean, it's too... Media overall, and you see this, Scott, they look for the sensationalistic. They look to see how they can blow something up to try to get their ratings up. And I think when Canadians hear or see that, they should just say, turn it off. Because it's bad media, and it's not only bad media, it brings about you know, not, not good results. I don't think we got good results on Monday night. Will we live with it? Absolutely. Well, because we're Canadians. Stephen Ledrew, you can see his stuff at the National Post on the nationalpost.com. Uh, always love having you on here. Thanks for doing this today. It's my great pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've had a lot of discussions on this station, on this show, in this city over the past number of years about math particularly about how to teach it since so many of our students seem to struggle with it if EQAO scores can give us any kind of indication or serve as any guide. And this always leads to two different responses that we get from people. One is teachers need to do a better job. Teachers aren't teaching math right. Maybe. The other is, well, you know what? Some people just aren't math people. How are we expecting people to learn math when they don't get math? They just don't have that part of their brain working. Well, let's discuss number one a different day. We're not going to talk about the teachers today because tonight we're going to concentrate on that second idea. Is it true that some people just aren't mathies? I mean, if you're a left brain person and your left brain is that analytical side, maybe if you're analytical, logical, numerical, yeah, you are into math. But if you are right brained, I mean, come on, what are you supposed to do? You're a creative person who doesn't follow the math kind of thing. Well, my next guest may suggest otherwise. Uh, she has a new podcast out called Math Therapy. Her name is Vanessa Vicaria, but she is better known as the math guru. She joins us now. Vanessa, how are you tonight? Oh, let me get her on there. Hold on. Why is it not working? Ben, you want to put her on there? Because she's not. Hello, Vanessa, are you there? No, we're, we're just having a little technical problem here. Hold on. The phone is just low. There we go. Vanessa, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. I'm the, here. There, excellent. Sorry about that. My <laughs> The button on the phone would not click today. So, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks hey, for being here again tonight. you're not a tech person, you know? That is true. The, I, I don't know if that means left brain or right brain or no brain. I'm not really sure. Well, okay, wait. We need to start by addressing this right brain, left brain thing because it is one of my biggest pet peeves because we use those like they mean something and there is literally... No scientific backing for that. There's no left brain, right brain. Like, it's all a myth. So that is another category that people stick themselves in because it's just this societal understanding that truly does not exist. So it's an so excuse. It is. 
Well, it's not an excuse. It's just we're obsessed with categorizing. Like, it's so funny that you started this by talking about right brain, left brain, because people kind of rile that off all the time. I'll hear people saying, oh, I'm more right brain. I'm more creative. So that is not a scientific thing. Okay. Like your brain is not divided that way. But we love in society saying, oh, I'm a math person or I'm a creative person. I'm a Sagittarius, you know? Oh, I'm a real Gemini. <laughs> you know, I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. People love putting themselves into boxes. And it's it's such an interesting phenomenon because I've studied this because I don't know if you know my background. I think we've talked about it before. When I failed math in high school, it's because I thought I'm more of a creative type. I love, you know, I'm in a rock band. I love music. By the way, and that, that was you coming in. That music yes. that was coming in, that was Vanessa, the rock star there. So, yes. Thank you so much for playing my band so that was good night sunrise i was i was shocked i was like oh my god but it's it's perfect that you started by playing that because that is part of the story right we have a lot of trouble with this idea that you can be multiple things and i think it's easier for people to categorize themselves and others but what it does is more harm than good because then we get this idea that we have people on the planet that are just born with this innate math skill and people who are not, and that is not true. But it, and, and I would guess that it also gives us, uh, you, I, you didn't like the word excuse, but it gives us a bit of an excuse. If I'm not yeah. naturally good at math, I can explain in a way by saying my brain isn't wired that way, therefore I don't have to bother. Absolutely. And actually, there are a few of the episodes on my podcast, which, you know, it, it, the second episode is out tomorrow, but you'll hear more about that later. But there are a few episodes where guests talk about being victims of circumstance, right? And that's exactly what you're talking about. Oh, I was just born this way. I'm a victim of my circumstance. There's no point in even trying. I can't do it. So do you believe that there, okay, so let's back right up though. Are some people more predisposed to be good at math? You know what? Somebody said this to me a really, really good way and I liked it. There, you know, we're born, there's a combination of nature and nurture that shapes us as people, right? And We're all born with different attributes, and those are kind of important. But they are not even close, except for a very small percentage of the population. Those innate things that we're born with are not even close to as important as the nurture we give them. Not even close, right? So, like, you know, you take, like, a baby that's born. If you look at any child, they are naturally mathematical. They're walking around exploring. They're counting things. They're trying to solve problems. That's what math is. Okay, so let me jump in with another biology question then. And this one is, I mean, politically probably very incorrect, and I'm going to be slightly delicate with this, but there are those who would say it appears that certain nationalities tend to have people that do better at math. And I don't know, uh, I, I, I don't know what to think of that, but it seems to me that's probably got something else besides just biology. But how do we... Sure. These, these, are, these are views that people have, that, that different nationalities are naturally yeah. better. And I'm really glad you brought that up. Now, I've done such extensive research in this, and I've dealt with all of these questions, and I think it's really great that we're bringing them up. So in many of those countries, like we can talk about Asia if you want, that's one of the biggest stereotypes, there is such a different work ethic and thought process when it comes to math. So just something very simple that I think most listeners will understand. In Canada, it's totally cool to walk around and be like, Ugh, I'm not a math person. You know, uh, I can't calculate my taxes. I can't calculate a tip. You would never, ever say that about reading, right? You would never say, I'm not no. a words person. Okay. But in countries like Asia, that's not acceptable. So they really do treat every single person with the attitude that, of course, they are born as a numerate and literate person. It's not really an option not to be. So, A, that complete change in attitude 
is the first major shift, right? Kids don't really start growing, grow up thinking I'm either a math person or not. They are assumed to all be math people. And that is one of the most important things. If you have already decided that, of course, I can do math, that changes how you'll approach math. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'll cut you loose with the precision of a calculator. Scott Radley Show. That also is Vanessa's band, Good Night Sunrise. Vanessa Vicaria, the math guru, joins us. Man, you got you got a multifaceted career going on here. Rock star, <laughs> math teacher, all hey, the math, podcaster. Math and music are very related. So. <laughs> well, they always say that kids who can do music end up doing better in math. Mm, do they? Okay. I, I've heard that many times that music helps you with your math. Who knows if that's true, but that, that'll be your next area of study. Uh, but we're talking just before the break about the idea of biology versus mm-hmm. teaching, I guess, and, and the idea that, you know, we've heard that certain nationalities, their kids, their people do better at math. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's just the way they're brought up. But you taking the issue and you saying, no, no, it's just, it's the expectation. And so we treat people the way that everybody is a math person. You just have to have it pulled out of you. You realize what you're saying by that when we're talking in Ontario, in Canada, about some of the math problems we're having, it means that somehow along the way, we are doing something wrong because our kids are not doing well at math. Can I give you like the greatest analogy of all time? When your kid is learning how to walk, right? Like they stumble and they fall, right? All the time. But we assume that every kid knows how to walk. So when they're stumbling and falling, parents are saying, oh, it's okay. They're giving them a hug. They're picking them up. They encourage them to walk until they can walk. But uh, when people do math, when kids do math, when they start not getting it, they get yelled at. They get told they're not going to be able to do it. They get treated with the assumption that there is a large chance they are not the type of person who can do math. Do we ever tell kids, hey, you're not the type of kid who's going to learn how to walk? I'm not a walk person. You're right. Like, exactly. Imagine if we treated kids with the assumption that they can do it. We don't. We don't treat them that way. We treat most kids. It's it's kind of like the guilty until proven innocent in a way, right? Like we're assuming you likely cannot do math. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. But we're not going to push much harder. So if you make mistakes and you're showing that you're struggling, we're going to write you off. That the exact same thing happened to me, and it has happened to everyone on my podcast and most adults I know. At some point along their journey. Someone gave up on them, and they made that very clear. Well, gave up or uh, decided that, you know what, your gift is not in math, so let's make you do the other thing, and we can sort of just leave math alone. Exactly. And again, that idea of choice that we started this entire kind of segment with, right? Like, you need to choose one or the other. You know what, you're, you're stronger in art right now. Let's just focus on that and drop everything else. There's no need to be doing that, right? Again, you're categorizing someone and you're limiting their ability to dream because you're telling them that their dreams have a limited scope and that they can only be focused in one area. So, okay. So again, if, if that's the case, then that means that school boards, schools, and parents, I'm not going to take, let parents off the hook are doing something wrong here. So what are we doing right when it comes to teaching our kids math? Because some kids are still doing well. And what are we doing wrong that we need to be doing better? Well, it's funny when I talk to people with different experiences, right, which is what the podcast is about. I have people on there that hate math, some that love math, and some who never cared. And I will tell you that in every story, there is always a teacher or a family member that comes into play, right? So 
teachers, for example, who encouraged kids who are making mistakes or who, who said something as simple as, I believe in you. I know you can do it. Let's figure out how you can do it. Same with parents. Those are the things that we're doing right. There are teachers and parents out there, right? There are, so that is a big, big theme that comes up over and over again. And I, I think if any adult right now listening thinks back to, like, you know how people will say, I'm bad at math. This is what will happen to me. Someone will say, I'm bad at math. And I'll say, give me an example of when you're bad at math. And they'll be like, oh, in grade five, this teacher used to yell at me. That's not an example of you being bad at math, right? That's an example of a math trauma happening. So those are the things I think you, you asked what we were doing right. When a teacher can beat that and actually act like a coach or a motivational speaker, that is doing something right, right? That's the narrative that kids need to hear. And I don't think it happens that frequently because that is we just don't treat teaching like coaching very often, right? So, and again, a lot of it is the assumption. I really do think that most adults out there, because of their own math experiences, just believe that there is such a thing as a math person. We, that, that's a term we use, and that's the first problem, right? We need to eradicate that. We need to get rid of that idea. Well, and we only have a few seconds left here, a minute left or so, but no, that's okay. But th- th- you just <laughs> raised one other thing. Uh, we could do this for hours, and we will do it for hours another day. Uh, you, but that's the other thing is, let's say that your kid, not yours, but someone listening, your sure. kid is not good at math, and you weren't good at math. Well, probably you're not going to be the one to feel like you can help them. So it's a sure. lot easier to get them to concentrate on something else because now I don't have to worry about my own deficiencies. That's interesting. Um, And I hope that parents listening take the opposite approach. And it's not about you having to like all of a sudden learn calculus and teach it to your kid. But I will say, forget the teaching. You know, there are people who will teach your kid for you. That's a teacher's job. The best thing you can do as a parent is tell your kid you believe in them, that you know they can do it, that maybe you weren't great at math, but you're willing to try again or you're willing to learn with them or you wish you had been and you're sad that you had a bad experience and you want to make sure your kid knows that they're capable of doing math. If they don't want to do math, that's a choice for them to make, but they can do it. That is the strongest thing a parent can do. Be sincere in your belief that your child is capable of doing math. It'll make more of a difference than you can imagine. All right. So this takes a long time to go through all this because your list is long. If you want to hear more about (laughs) Vanessa and math, her podcast is called Math Therapy. You can download it probably anywhere you want to find it. Math Therapy. Uh, She is called the Math Guru. You can go to her website and find out stuff from there. If you you like that band when it was coming in, it's called Goodnight Sunrise. Uh, You can find that online. And if you needed one more thing, she was also a contestant on Canada's Smartest Person (laughs) Once Upon a Time. Where it fails the math part where I got four minus three wrong. I answered two on national television. You did not. I was so, this can be a different segment, but I literally experienced math anxiety. I got (laughs) so worked up that I got it. My parents were watching like in in front of a live studio audience. So even, and I'm, I'm great at math, but you know, the stress can get to you. (laughs) (laughs) We will definitely do this again. Love having you on Vanessa. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you so much for making time for math in the media. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Remember those commercials with the guy, it was the Molson Canadian commercials where the guy, I can't remember his name now, who said, you know, I am Canadian. And he listed off all those things that made him truly Canadian. Well, there's more to that list. If you are truly a Canadian, you have consumed a double-double. You have, let's see, what else have you done? You've eaten a Killaloo beaver tail. Uh, you can probably recite the lyrics to Canadian Railroad Trilogy and probably the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, you could pick Bruno Gerussi out of a police lineup if need be. 
Uh, you know what the Galloping Gourmet is. And you would know the difference between St. John and St. John's. That's among other things. Oh, and there's one other thing. At one time in your life, you have either been intrigued, fascinated, or taken with a Zamboni, or may still be. The Zamboni is such a symbol of Canada, and so many people just love the idea. I don't really know what it is about it, but it is just the symbol of Canadiana. Well, my next guest has pulled together the history of this most Canadian of all inventions. His name is Eric Dredney. He's written Zamboni, the coolest machine on ice. And guess what he found? It's not Canadian at all, which is a bit of a shock. Eric, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And, you know, I must say, I don't con- I'm don't. i from Minnesota. I'm here in Minnesota, and I don't consider us that different from Canada. But I don't think I could name any. I don't know what you're talking about with all those <laughs> Canadian things. <laughs> See that the border, you know, they have that you guys have the border wall or at least the start of it down from Mexico to the States, which is cutting. We may as well have that between Canada and the States up near the border. Cause if you can't sing yeah. the Canadian railroad trilogy or tell me what a Killaloo beaver tail is, then, you know, yeah. we know the difference, but here's the thing, Eric, as I was, I, I had always thought, and forgive me for this. We have a Zamboni plant here in Brantford, just up the road from us where Wayne yep. Gretzky is from. Yeah. And I had always thought the Zamboni was invented in Brantford. It wasn't. Yeah. Well, I always thought that the Zamboni was in, was invented in Northern Minnesota. So you mm-hmm. got me there too, right? Um, cause we consider ourselves the state of hockey. In of course. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but then finding out, like, it's from Southern California. Southern California <laughs> that makes no sense uh, at all. How did that happen? Tell, oh. tell, Take a few minutes or whatever time it takes. Tell the story of how the Zamboni came to be. Because, again, it seems the most unlikely place in the world for it to have been started. Yeah. So, okay. So, Frank Zamboni. So, Zamboni, a good Italian name. So, his relatives came from Northern Italy. So, he settled. They go out there in Southern California out in a town called Paramount, which is a suburb of L.A., and he saw, he, you know, he worked at this refrigeration plant, and he saw all of this after the war, all of the art, the old uh, war material, and so he, at the ice rink there, they saw, you know, the way that they used to do it, they would scrape the ice and steam it and mop it, and it's just a big old mess, and it never was very well done, of course. Um, so he was a tinkerer, and he has, he's got an old Willie's Jeep frame, and all of these old these augers and these different things to refrigerate it and lay down a sheet of water. Um, and so he figured out how to do this, and he, he made his first machine was called the thingamajig. That um, was so the official he, name? That's what, yeah, the newspapers named it. Because like, what is this <laughs> new machine? And, um, and of course, the, the company is always very clear to say that it's not a Zamboni. It's a Zamboni ice resurfacer, a Zamboni machine, or whatever, because otherwise it becomes like Kleenex or something else. It's just a, a product that anyone can use, right? But it sort of, you know, in a way, it has become that. Absolutely. They're, they're ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, so he, okay, so Frank Zamboni then outside, he had a, a rink. So this is Southern California. He had this outdoor rink in Southern California in the winter. He only did that one winter because it was ridiculous. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and then he, uh, Sonia Haney, the Norwegian figure skater, after she won her Olympic gold medals, she went on her tour all around, you know, the U.S., Canada, anywhere that would have her. Um, and she went down to uh, Southern California to Paramount and did her show there. And she saw this thingamajig out on the ice and she said, show me that thing. And so Frank Samboni sold it to her. 
Um, and so she brought it around on her ice show all around North America. Um, and all the other ice arenas thought, well, this is going to save us so much time between periods, between, you know, any time that they need to, to clean the ice. Um, so they, Zamboni, the company, claims that Sonia Haney essentially made their company. That, I mean, which is which is remarkable because, again, I think most people would have thought of this. Yes, figure skaters use it, but I think most people would have thought of this as a hockey invention. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was just to clear the ice for the kids to, you know, I mean, it was partially hockey, partially figure skating, partially just skating in Southern California because it was such an oddity. Not, not winter down there, which isn't really winter at all, of course. What did now? A couple things about this very first one. What did the first one look like? Did it actually bear any resemblance to what we would see as a zamboni today? No, because we think you know now the zamboni ice surfaces are sort of this boxy thing. I mean, it's sort of become their look in a way. The early ones, it's a essentially a jeep with a bunch of this rigging and this big chain that kind of goes overhead to pull the ice the shavings up into the big the tank there and i mean it's it's kind of you think you don't want to get near this thing with that thing is going your arm is chopped <laughs> off it looks like do we have now i mean you've looked this up and you've written the book about it do we have any idea if this was in fact the first model that he did or had he been sitting there drawing plans for this and drawing plans for this and drawing plans for this and finally settled on one yeah, no, he has all sorts of early drawings of these things. So he drew them and they kind of tinkered with it. So, I mean, there were, the early models are all completely different from each other. Um, and so then, you know, Sonia, Sonia Haney, as soon as they had a better model, of course, she used that one. Um, and, of course, now you have all these fancy electric ones. And the, the amazing thing about going down to the factory is it's in a, kind of a smallish town there, and they're all hand-built. It's not like one of these big, you know, Ford manufacturing places with all these uh, these robots building these things. These, there's just some guys out there, you know, with a bunch of ratchets putting these things together. Even today? Um, even today, yeah. I mean, so that's why there really aren't that many when you think about it, and they're very expensive because they're, you know, you have to adjust them just right. And the great thing down there in Paramount, they drive them on the streets because <laughs> I mean, they, they test drive them around. They drive them from one of their warehouses to the next. And the police all know that they're there. I mean, it's not very not that many, but around their sort of facilities, you get them driving around. Well, and I, I'm laughing at it. I mean, right now there's a commercial that's playing on TV up here, and it's playing all the time for Tim Hortons of Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon driving one around in the subdivision. So we sort of have that image in mind. But to, to have that sort of going down a main street as a test drive is a slightly different image. Um, did he... Okay, so when when the first one sold to Sonia Henney and... and did he still, did Frank Zamboni even at that point realize what he had stumbled upon or was it still like, okay, I'll sell two or three of these things and then we're done? Yeah. I mean, he didn't, you know, he was constantly tinkering. He sold, I don't think it was just for the first one he sold to Sonia Haney, but one of the early ones. Um, yeah. So they were constantly changing. He thought, well, how many ice arenas are there? I mean, especially in California, there aren't that many. Um, you know, and he they would just make them one at a time. And, and so soon enough, of course, you know, Olympia copied them and there's some other uh, copies out there um but is you know looking back at some of the in the archives that they have there he was also commissioned by major league baseball to make uh, sort of this giant vacuum to on the astroturf because when it would rain they couldn't get the water off it wouldn't go through and so this giant sort of water vacuum this wet vac 
that they actually, uh, down in Paramount, they laid out a bunch of AstroTurf and flooded the streets and had their machines go out there and suck <laughs> all that up. I mean, it looks like a Zamboni, but for a baseball game. You mentioned Olympia. So, yeah, there are other companies that make these things, and I think still, correct? I mean, it's not the only, Zamboni's not the only one still. There are other companies that do it. Yeah, there are other companies. Um, and then, of course, Zamboni is sort of the, the one to compete with because they're usually the, the best ones. Um, and then in the, the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, they, uh, they used one of the Olympias that was actually built in Canada, um, but then it, two of them broke down and they couldn't make the ice. And so they had to go back to Zamboni and ask them to bring in another ice, one of their ice resurfacers that they had used at the Calgary Olympics. Well, so they I, I, fly it in and sort of Zamboni <laughs> saved the day. And I don't, I don't know that this is even a fair question to ask because I don't know if you're going to have an answer, but there are certain things that, as you say, become synonymous with the company. Uh, Kleenex, for example, which a lot of people just refer to Kleenex. That's a capital letter K. It's a proper name, Kleenex. It's a brand yeah. or other ones like that. Any idea why, even though it was first, it's not always the one that's first that gets connected like that. How did Zamboni end up so connected that everybody thinks of that machine with that name? Well, because it's mesmerizing. You know, you think like, well, who cares? You know, they claim the ice, big deal. But, I mean, especially, you know, with all little kids, like, okay, the hockey's going on, it's all crazy, and everyone's rushing around. It stops, and then this weird machine comes out on the ice, this little box. It's going very slowly, and it just does these, you know, mesmerizing circles around the ice. And so everyone, you know, and then it's got that big emblazoned, you know, black and white name Zamboni across it, which the name is just great. Um, so kids, of course, like they, they don't, they don't care about the hockey so much. They just want to see the Zamboni. Right? And mesmerizing, so became, mesmerizing is a great word. I mean, it really is because maybe it's because we're a captive audience at that point. You can either go out and buy a hot dog and a beer, or you can sit there and watch this thing go around. But even everybody watches, everybody watches it as stupid as it is yeah. to watch a trucker or a thing drive around in circles. Everybody does. Yeah, because it's slow, and you think, like, I could do that. I, I want to drive that Zamboni, right? Oh, then you have the Gear Daddy song that the yes. I want to drive the Zamboni for. They're, speaking of which, they're from Minneapolis right here. Uh, but uh, so they, uh, you know, that idea, and then you have when you have two Zambonis going around. Oh. Like, wow, this is, like, are they, they going to hit? And they're, you know, it's a slow motion thing that's so funny to watch. I'm waiting for, an, uh, for one rink to get a third Zamboni and start doing the weave and stuff and make it really complex just as, as the, you know, the intermission yeah. show. And, and to your point though, Eric, <laughs> when you say, oh, I could do that, I've been at a minor hockey arena, Port Huron, Michigan. I was covering a minor league game and the Zamboni driver, I don't know what was going on, didn't quite do it properly, ended up slamming into the open gate of the bench and rearranged all the boards all the way around the ice. So not everybody can do oh. it. There is still an element yeah. that, of skill that's involved in driving these things. No, apparently it's really tricky to do, and that's why you know, they take it slow and you know, going around the board, I mean, you have to go right up snug against the board, but you can't really use the board to push you off. So it's not, as, not nearly as easy as it looks. You, you brought up something else, which I think is fascinating, and that is uh, the idea of kids so taken with this. There are rinks now, and I'm sure most people have seen them, I know you have, where there are, especially down in the South when hockey was just trying to gain a foothold, where they would put a, like a guest, a passenger seat hanging off the Zamboni so some kid could get a chance during an intermission to drive around at the NHL game on the ice, which I think is ridiculous and yet brilliant at the same time, because we know what that thing means to kids. Yeah, you know, and it's t- 
talking with the, the company, and they hate that because <laughs> okay, this machine, it's like a, the, the auger underneath there. I mean, it's super sharp blades churning this up and all of this. You know, it's, it's a dangerous machine. You know, it's not a, a toy, but we think of it as a toy. And so, you know, when they have kids doing this stuff, it's like, no, no, they, they, yeah, they do not condone that in <laughs> any shape or form. But at the same time, you know, I was just at a hockey game this last weekend on the Gophers, and yeah, they, yeah, all the kids are on, I mean, they're riding up, they have a special little seat. And Zambonis are not just, I mean, it has taken a place weirdly. And again, uh, we need to stop here for a second because you've written the book about this and we're talking about it. We got to stop for just a second to realize how weird this is that this has become such a cultural thing. Because again, it is just a box truck driving around a rink in slow circles. It really should not be anything fascinating. And yet there are lots, there's tons. It shows up in pop culture all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, with a company, they kind of keep track of all the different references to it. And you just, wow, what, what what happened here? And I think a lot of it has to do with the name. But, I mean, it is the machine in and of itself, too. It's just going around. And, you know, my eight-year-old daughter, she just wants to sit there and watch this. You know, it's like that. She loves it. I mean, you know, they make plush toys of this. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that's got something? You mentioned it before. Do you think the name has something to do with how well it caught on? Because you're right, Zamboni is is a fun name to say, and it's different, and it catch, yeah. it's really catchy. If it was, the like, uh, if his last name had been Frank Thompson, would we know about the Thompson machine, or would we just go, uh, you know what, it's just the ice machine? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, and what, ironically, you know, having, over in Italy, Zamboni, I mean, it's not an unknown name. Like, in, in Bologna, like, the main street where the university is, is the Zamboni. So, I mean, it's a common name there. I mean, that, and not an uncommon name, let's say. But I mean, it's just got a ring to it, you know, Zamboni. Wow, it sounds like, you know, a superhero or something. And then it's just this big box that goes slowly around the ice. Have you ever driven on one? I or, or driven one, period? Yeah, I, no. They, I, I said, you know, when I went out to the factory, I'm like, you're going to let me drive one? You're going to let me? No way. They let me come near one. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, the, it probably would be, as much as they want them driving around the streets of Paramount, they probably don't want one crashing into a police car on the streets of Paramount or something. Yeah, yeah. No, because, I mean, <laughs> because all of the, the publicity about that. Then, of course, you know. And then, of course, you know, you Canadians, you get all these stories about, you know, someone driving through a Tim Hortons yes. with a Zamboni and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I know there's been uh, people who've driven through the Tim Hortons drive through I know they've had people arrested for drunk driving of Zambonis in an arena. Yep, yep. Uh, I've uh-huh. heard of those ones before. Um, my, I think my personal favorite Zamboni story ever, which only loosely ties to a Zamboni, and I still don't know that this is true, but I was told this by a minor hockey player, and I warned people ahead of time, this is a little disturbing. During a minor hockey game, they said in Michigan there was a cow milking contest in the intermission that went horribly wrong, and one of the cows had stepped off the carpet and broke its leg and a police officer had to put it out of its misery at center ice and then was dragged off the ice by the Zamboni. And I thought, okay, well, at least if you're going to have to use something for something, a Zamboni may as well be used for that. But lots of different things. I've never been able to prove that story, but I've been told by a couple people it's true. Uh, Before we let you... red on the ice. Oh my goodness. It it would be a mess. It would be a mess. And there was that Zamboni that, I don't know if it was a Zamboni or the Olympia or whatever that blew up at a hockey game one time. The, the, all the liquids fell out and there was a huge stain. Remember that one on the ice that the, um, the oil or something dripped. Anyway, uh... I didn't hear about that one. I know that now, I mean, they're trying to do 
more and more of the electric ones, just because, especially these indoor arenas, you know, with the, especially if they're just a regular uh, gasoline engine, it's, that's not so good um, inside. You have to have real good ventilation. Any idea what one of these things costs? Typically, I mean, I know there's oh, different models. Yeah, they're different models. They can easily run a hundred grand. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, for a good, and that's why you know they keep. They, but the, the thing is, they essentially will run forever. I mean, you have to change out, you have to sharpen things, you have to maintain them, and all of that. But I mean, that's where you know the used market on them. It's like they get snatched up right away. But I mean, look, I mean, if you've got one at a rink, uh, what are they doing? Maybe if you were to do it every hour, you were to clean the ice, you'd do a mile a day on them. I mean, it's not like yeah. you're putting tons of mileage on these things when you're just driving around in circles on a rink. Yeah. But then, I mean, now they get dull and they have to, you know, you have to clean everything out. And I mean, of course, they, they're much more efficient than those early thingamajig days. But yeah, it takes a, it takes a, a beating, I think, after a while and they constantly uh, reworking them. The, uh, the book is called Zamboni, The Coolest Machines on Ice. Uh, we've been talking to Eric Dregny. So much better that they came out, that they actually settled on Zamboni than thingamajig, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eric, I really appreciate you taking some time to do this today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. And so I'll have to look up all those Canadian things, and uh, then maybe we'll introduce you to some Minnesotan things. Well, and, and you know what? Then your next book can be all the Canadianisms that, are, that Minnesotans don't know. Yeah, right. And vice versa. Yeah, because, you know, Ontario, you, you border Minnesota, too, because Ontario is so big. Well, we bo- not only do we border Minnesota, now I'm going to bore people here listening, but the women's hockey coach at University of Minnesota, who has led your team to I don't know how many national championships now, Brad Frost, is from right here. So um, oh, okay. there right. you go. So we're all, see, we're all just intermixed and intermingled, and the Zamboni just ties us all together. Yeah, and where you are, you know, you can come north to Minneapolis. You know, you're south of us. Maybe on a Zamboni someday. We'll drive up there on the Zamboni. Eric Dregny, the, again, the book is called Zamboni, The Coolest Machines on Ice. Thanks so much for the time. All right, take care. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.